Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jason Newton, visiting assistant professor of history at Cornell University and the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Joseph E. Taylor III, a professor of history and geography at Simon Fraser University. Professor Taylor's research investigates the intersections of social and ecological systems in fisheries, outdoor recreation, gentrification, conservation and the politics of the American West. He's the author of Making Salmon, an Environmental History of the Northwest Fisheries Crisis, uh, which was actually the winner of the George Perkins Marsh Prize for Best Book in Environmental History, and also the author of Pilgrims of the Vertical, Yosemite, Rock Climbers, and Nature at Risk. Uh, he's also done a digital project called Follow the Money, a spatial history of in-lieu programs for Western federal lands. Uh, today, we're here to talk about his new book, Persistent Calling, Seasons of Work and Identity on the Oregon Coast, published by Oregon State, Press, Oregon State University Press in 2019. Uh, jo- uh, Joseph Taylor, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, So a quick note to the listeners, Um, I'm actually reviewing this book for the journal Environmental History, but as of March 6, 2020, the manuscript is submitted, and and this conversation will have no bearing on that review, and the editorial staff at Environmental History knows about the interview, and it has okayed it, so I don't think we're violating any academic norms with this interview, but we wanted to let everybody know about that. Okay, uh, Joseph, so in the beginning of the book, you actually discuss a bit about your biography and you talk about some of the things that drew you to the subject of fishing and and also a little bit about your passion for rock climbing. So can you elaborate on how this personal history drew you to environmental history more generally and and the topic of this book specifically? Sure. Uh, To put it succinctly, I split my time growing up between uh, Southern and Central California during the school years and the Oregon coast during the summertime, specifically down in Pacific City, where my great aunt had a shack, which is probably the most accurate way to describe how the place we grew up in. And over time, uh, as I grew up, I I came to simply, uh, you know, gravitate towards that place and that identity more as my basic identity uh, across my teens in particular. So that at a certain point around the end of my teens, I simply walked away from higher education, uh, moved down there and started fishing and uh, doing other things full time uh, when I wasn't running off to go climbing or something like that. And it was it was an extraordinary period to be there because it was both um, really the end of the small town life of uh, 
Pacific City uh, and a period of absolute wreckage in the Nesteca Valley in the late 70s and early 80s when um, the economy just uh, tanked for all sorts of different reasons. And as I watched it unfold, um, I also became more and more not simply uh, concerned about what was going on, but curious about what was driving these problems because each one seemed different and all of them uh, required me to pay attention to how, as you put it, social systems and ecological systems interact. Uh, and across the 80s, even though I wasn't in school, I was reading a lot on uh, fisheries research, uh, pollution studies, uh, coming to terms with understanding the atmospheric engines that drive El Nino and other things like that. And in fact, I was reading the stuff as it was coming out because there were a lot of people in fisheries and uh, 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 the in forestry and other uh, activities that were essentially scrambling to try and understand this as well because nobody had a good answer at the time. And by the end of it, having read a couple of really crucial books, uh, one being Peter Matheson's Men's Lives and the other being Art McAvoy's masterpiece, uh, The Fisherman's Calling, or uh, The Fisherman's Problem, excuse me. Um, I also realized that whatever was going on ecologically, this was a deeply historical problem. And those two things together got me, drew me back into school with a focus very specifically on what was happening to Nestucca, but always an understanding that it was a microcosm of a much larger set of problems. Great. So you you actually did some fishing work, right? Is that correct? Uh, Fifteen years worth. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so you you definitely have experience um, in the industry, and it shows in this book in terms of the the detail that. Um, you bring to the reader, which I, I really enjoyed. W would you mind um, just uh, giving the listeners a sense of the geography of Nestucca? Uh, if just kind of, you know, the the layout of the area that you're studying. Well, it's it, it's a small watershed on the Oregon coast. Um, uh, it's uh, it has three significant tributaries: the Nestucca, Little Nestucca, and three rivers. Uh, that pour out of the coastal mountains, which are not very high, but very rugged, and then out into the Pacific Ocean, very near uh, a set of beaches that have been attracting tourists since the 19th century. And uh, as a result, what you have in the valley over time is the development, parallel development of a recreational industry from the very beginning, tourism, um, a fishing industry, uh, a very deep and uh, extensive uh, dairying industry that is related to the larger Tillamook uh, creamery and Tillamook cheese, and uh, a, a belated uh, forestry industry that emerges there that just takes much longer to uh, uh, really appear in any significant uh, form, simply because when the place was first settled, it was burned to a crisp. Great. Um, and, and so, you know, the as the title suggests, uh, the book is really about this idea of callings or or identity and, and the passion that people have for the work that they do. So can you describe um, how you connect 
this idea of callings with the environment and and fishing technology? Uh, it's uh, it, the technological issue is uh, comes belatedly because technology is always changing. But um, when I sat down and started trying to write a history of the place, I began. I learned very quickly that the archival collections, the government documents were pretty darn thin because this is a, this is a small watershed. There are no um, incorporated towns and thus no local records. Uh, so in essence, from the very beginning, uh, when I was back in uh, school as an undergraduate, I realized I had to do a lot of oral interviews. And Getting, getting to sit down with uh, a bunch of uh, neighbors who were very old, who'd seen a lot of stuff, I learned quickly to just shut up and let them run with whatever they wanted to talk about. And what emerged out of that over time very clearly was a passion for what they did. Um, and that had my attention very quickly. Uh, Fishermen and uh, fishing families talked about the importance of fishing, the role of the ocean, um, the connections with the species. Uh, loggers rhapsodized about working in the woods and dairy farmers. Well, they didn't rhapsodize about cows, but they they loved what they did very clearly. As a result, uh, and as a result, the callings part just was unavoidable from all of this. Um, it took me much, much longer, and by much longer, I mean 28 years, uh, and coming back to the project later, uh, to begin to realize that the people who were rhapsodizing about these various things were actually doing all the other things, too. And it was uh, at that point, I had to sit down and think about, uh, okay, these are people that do a variety of different tasks, but when you listen to them, they'll tell you that the one thing matters more than the others. And that's what drew me into the, the heart of the, the question of how identity uh, and work, uh, census material, uh, technological innovations, they all inter, uh, intersect with this uh, desire uh, to do things that's partly about feeding, making money and what have you, but it can never be uh, fully encompassed by those simple economic uh, descriptions. Great. And, and of course, um, essential to the lives of these people are um, the fish, uh, right, and, and salmon specifically. So can you talk about how salmon um, shaped the cultures in the region going back to um, pre, a time of pre-European contact and, and going forward into the 19th century? Well, <laughs> and there's an anthropologist named Eugene Hun, who I worked with at the University of Washington, who wanted to remind everybody that um, Northwest uh, Indians, while they uh, spent a lot of time fishing, they also spent a lot of time hunting and gathering and other things. And you can, uh, salmon sometimes eclipses all those other relationships. But to understand how peoples who uh, were able to settled down for months at a time during winter uh, and spend that time 
telling stories, producing art, uh, and engaging in very complex cultures, you have to pay attention to how important the salmon was in terms of dried salmon was in terms of being able to allow people to stop their annual uh, food quests. And uh, as a result, you get lots of oral traditions about the importance of salmon. And if you read them carefully, you'll see the metaphoric connections between salmon, wealth, security, power, uh, and uh, also the importance of treating these animals with respect so that they keep coming back across uh, the generations. So that part's pretty straightforward. The interesting thing is when they are driven, when a group of Nestakas, Alces, and Tillamooks are driven out of the valley in 1875 um, by a bunch of mostly white Protestants who care very little about fish, the first thing they do is start fishing. So, yeah, it's, uh, the salmon are always important in the valley. As one settler said, they were the first industry of any note in the valley, and they continue to be important for a very long time. Uh, but it was seasonal. Uh, the, uh, the runs that uh, coursed up uh, the Nestucca River in late summer and early fall uh, and through the winter uh, actually constituted several different species. And those sequential runs uh, became the backbone of an extended commercial fishery that attracted uh, capitalists from Astoria and other places, but also uh, a lot of seasonal fishers and a lot of people who in other seasons were farmers or loggers or trappers or what have you. Great. Yeah. Um, So, you know, can you explain, you know, from the perspective of these white um, settler colonists, um, a, a little more about kind of the the seasonal nature of work and and how they would shift occupations based on on the um, uh, you know seasons essentially. Yeah, well, it, it, the center of this again is biology uh, as much as anything else, because the vast majority of settlers who uh, cross the coast range and settle in the Nesteca Valley. Are agrarianists. They, they're farmers, uh, dairy farmers, cattle ranchers to a certain extent at the beginning. But across the late 19th century, most of these people are actually yearning to be connected to markets, uh, to produce something they could sell. And cows turned out to be really well adapted to the wet, grassy bottomlands of the Nestucca Valley. Uh, but the problem is you couldn't just milk them and sell the fresh milk. Uh, so from the very beginning, they, they're oriented towards butter. And then at the end of the 19th century, they begin to, uh, they may, they've been making cheese for a while, but at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th, 20th century, um, a group of farmers had hired a, uh, a dairy specialist, a, a, a cheesemaker straight from Cheddar, England. And he came with the recipe. They wired it very quickly. And as a result, that became the staple product for much of the valley as a result. So uh, they were primarily focused early on in producing cheese. The problem is that cows um, can only be milked for so much of the year. And then they need to stop being milked. They need to dry up, as uh, as the phrase went. 
And that process more or less coincided with the arrival of salmon. So when the cows stopped being milk, they sought other things to do. Some went logging and some went trapping, but some picked up nets and got in the river and fished. Um, and similarly, the people who were working in the woods, there were times when the woods were just too wet and dangerous or they were too dry and dangerous. So they would go and uh, pick up other occupations. So people who called themselves farmers or fishermen or loggers or trappers were seasonally laborers doing something else. Yeah, great. And and I think that's a super important contribution of this book. Um, and I think it's true for other areas um, in the United States that hasn't really gotten the attention uh, by historians that it should, that, you know, what we call um, an occupation or a calling, you know, for one person is different throughout the year. Um, but, you know, in Nistuka, uh, an important change happened in 1927, uh, a legal change. So can you talk a little bit about how that affected the, the economy in the area and, and these people? Right. Uh, there had been tourists coming to the Nistuka Valley since the 1880s. And by the 1920s, automobility had drawn more and more people in the late summer and fall who were very specifically interested in fishing for sport. And there had always been a deep conflict between angler relations with uh, rivers and uh, fish and commercial relations. And these were, these were rooted in essentially what um, historians call allocation battles. Uh, who gets how many fish. And the angling community are mostly a few uh, very vocal angling enthusiasts uh, began to eye the Nistuka as a, uh, one of those places they could maybe um, flip into and what they called an angling paradise or a sporting paradise by ending the commercial fishery. And they'd been advocating this for a number of years through the early 1920s. And then in 1925, there was a major El Nino event off the Pacific Ocean and runs crashed up and down the coast. Uh, of course, at the time, nobody understood what El Nino was, let alone its impact on salmon fisheries. So the uh, reflexive conclusion was that the commercial fishers in the river had overfished and that the runs were imploding. Uh, and they used this as a pretext in uh, early 1927 to get the state legislature to shut down the fishery. Um, that might have been the end of it, except the locals existed. They um, used the uh, referendum process in Oregon to gather enough signatures to put, uh, to refer the uh, Nistaka closing law to the uh, June ballot. And then they engaged in a flat out campaign with a political campaign with inland anglers. And they were outnumbered in the end, but it was an extraordinary sort of story to follow and just realize how how much effort they put into trying to save their fishery. Yeah, so now might be a good time to um, clear up some kind of technical fishing terms. As I understand it, there's kind of three different ways of, of fishing in the region. There was netting, angling, as you mentioned, and, and then tro trolling, right? Uh, can you just describe those different methods of fishing? 
Well, they're, they're, each one is the whole uh, slew of different technologies, but uh, specifically in the Nestucca, the commercial fishing that went on the river, well, the, within the river, there were actually... Um, there were actually five different technologies. Um, uh, native fishers used both spears and dip nets. Uh, the commercial fishers uh, used uh, mostly uh, floating gill nets, you know, which they just laid out across a portion of the stream. They were never allowed to lay a net over the complete stretch of the stream and probably wouldn't have survived if they did. That's just too much pressure but they would uh lay out nets uh and then float them downstream with the current and uh hoping that fish would swim into the mesh but because of the size of the mesh not be able to swim through it and thus be entangled um the other way they would catch was by setting up nets from the shoreline out into the river and those were also gill, gill nets but they had a they had a different base in terms of how they were operated and then finally there's angling uh, in the river, just hooking lines. And the basis of the 1927 law was to prohibit all types of fishing other than hook and line. Okay. That was the river fisheries. Um, and so after the, the 1927 law, you know, we see f- fishermen uh, from the region, we, we don't see a story of necessary economic decline, but adaptation. Right and persistence. So, what, how did fishing change uh, due to that law? Well, the first thing that changed was not so much this type of fishing as um, how um, the secrecy of fishing, because over the next few years, actually from 1927 till roughly about 1939, there was a cadre of fishers, uh, local fishers, who continued to pursue this largely because. With the onset of the depression, which arrived and then stuck before the crash of 1929, they really had very few options. And as uh, two different uh, correspondents told me, they would never have made a go of it without doing, uh, without engaging in what was officially poaching. But so they continued, but they worked as a group, looking out for each other and mostly watching out for uh, uh, game wardens during that period. Uh, but across time, it just got harder and more difficult to do for a variety of reasons. So uh, while netting continued to operate both for subsistence purpose and for selling to people who were very willing to buy the, the fish, um, over time, it just it became sketchier and sketchier for a variety of reasons that had to do both with uh, levels of risk was one thing, but the other is that uh, the river just got harder to manage because they no longer were able to go out and pull stumps and do other things to ensure that they had clean drifts. Uh, Great. And and so also after this time, I mean, you know, throughout, as you mentioned, the 19th century, there were tourists in, in the region, but you know, I think the way you describe the tourists were, isn't necessarily as, kind of an unwelcome invasion, but they, you know, contribute to the economy in a number of ways. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and that was another one of the things, uh, the elements of this story that it took me a while to realize um, that for quite a long time, these various industries, fishing, farming, logging, and tourism, which we now may largely view as inimical to each other at some levels, 
were actually quite complementary. Uh, for example, with tourism, the, the peak of tourism was summer and uh, early fall. And as a result, what those people coming from the outside tended to create was not just uh, market possibilities for merchants, but also a demand for fish from the ocean and uh, game and other things that could be provided by locals uh, in such a way that um, they actually poured more cash into the economy that distributed beyond simply the merchants and their employees for a variety of in a variety of ways. And again, this is a small, marginal, remote valley where specie doesn't really flow through the economy all year long. So these infusions of cash, both through tourism and through uh, the commercial fishery, were really, really important to the valley for the rest of the year as well. Yeah. um, And, you know, I think throughout the book, uh, you give these amazing details on, um, you know, the environment, but also technology, and and you describe so well the the fishing labor process. And you know, in my opinion, those types of details on work, um, with a few exceptions, are relatively rare in, in environmental history. So, can you explain why those details about how fishing actually happened were important to your story that you're telling? I I think the best way into this discussion is um, by uh, recognizing at the front end just how important uh, Richard White's work uh, on knowing nature through labor is because this is genuine work to go out and commercial fish, especially back in the early part of the 20th century, was uh, all of this was conducted purely with organic labor. It was, you got in a boat and you rowed and uh, then you set nets and then you dragged in nets. And there was no machinery whatsoever to this uh, in the sense of easing those labors. But that was also how people connected to rivers or to cutting down trees or to managing animals. Um, there's no vacuum milkers at this time. There are no chainsaws. Everything is done by hand and back. And in that process, there's a connection, deep connection to nature that for the people who really like that nature just reinforces all of the meanings that come from it. Um, uh, among the things I try to remind readers about is that in the era of commercial fishing, especially with linen nets, which are thick twine nets, everything had to be done at night because the fish could see the net during the day. So you know, these are people who do all their work at night out in a river with logs floating down and seals splashing around and other people's boats and nets. So they have a, a genuine task to do that is both demanding in terms of physical nature and just sometimes flat out dangerous. Uh, yeah, okay. So I think, you know, in the book, you do a great job showing how, you know, these environmental factors, the technological factors that change over time, uh, shape this, this, uh, thing called call a calling. Um, and I, I guess, you know, the one thing, the the one thing that stuck out stuck out to me besides the awesome details on on the labor process was you don't 
use the term class as often as as the term calling. So, you know, did you see a class forming among these workers, uh, among these fishermen? Um, and and if you if if you didn't see class there, why why don't you think a class formed? Um, the historiography on seasonal labor um, has largely focused on uh, groups of people like um, uh, uh, tar workers in uh, the Carolinas or, or bindlestiffs on the Great Plains, people who show up at particular points in the year to harvest stuff and then they disappear to somewhere else. And they're largely working class people. Uh, one of the things that struck me about the Nestucca Valley was how many of the people who are moving around from job to job are actually also pro uh, property owners. They are farmers in different seasons, or they're, uh, they're entrepreneurs engaged in a variety of different activities across. They don't see themselves as laborers in any simple sense of, I'm just a wage laborer. Uh, as a result, um, the, the, class angle in the Marxian framework doesn't work well for this. Uh, they see themselves very differently. Uh, it partly is entrepreneurs, but I think mostly their primary identities are as families, uh, family uh, men and uh, mothers and uh, children of families and members of churches and members of local communities. They, there's not those those other markers that we see in other places this way. Um, it's also, it's all small scale. Um, uh, the closest we see to a class of genuine wage laborers are the largely silenced um, Chinese workers who are brought in to work the canneries. Uh, and I've struggled and struggled to try and get access to those, those voices, and I never could. Yeah, and um, that's an important uh, lesson to take away from this book. Um, and I remind my students this often that America was largely a rural country um, into the 20th century until the 1920s when we see you know, um, the demographic shift into a majority of people living in cities. And a lot of those rural people were these types of um, – farmers who did other work seasonally. And so when we talk about class in the rural setting, um, we have to acknowledge that, that as you mentioned, many of these people were owners um, uh, of a productive property, and, and therefore that really complicates how we might think of class. Um, but if I can push you a little more on this point, um, do you think you know not having that class identity um, harm the ability of these fishermen to advocate for, um, you know, conditions of work that were would benefit them. Like, did not having a class uh, inhibit their ability to fight that 1927 law? Well, um, this is where it gets complicated because uh, at least a, a subset of the fish, uh, the gillnetters on the river, were also part of a fishing union. Um, and thus, when they go to campaign in the Valley, one of these, the crucial connections they make is to the, uh, the Portland area unionists, 
uh, through a couple major organizations. One which was straightforward was the fishing union, but the other was a much broader uh, umbrella organization for Portland area unionists. And they make a, a strong appeal to them, uh, even though they're situated differently. And that's pretty clear from the beginning with this. Um, but um, it's not clear that their appeal really works. And uh, part of it comes from other work that has been done on that particular vote. Because it's not clear that the Portland area unionists uh, see the alliance with other unionists in this case. Uh, this is one of those crucial moments where we begin to see people situating themselves differently. And the, the fundamental tension is not so much in class, but urban versus rural. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, again, going back to this idea that these fishermen were often also farmers, the New Deal was set up in, in a way to really give um, a lot of rights to wage workers, but the types of workers that were doing the, the fishing, these uh, small-scale family operations, were largely left out of the New Deal framework. And so, you know, they they are oftentimes these type of rural workers are, are the... Um, worst off type of workers in the country going in, into the second half of the 20th century. Yeah, that's, that's largely true. There's, there will be some mitigating factors in the second half, but uh, remember that these people who are fishers, they're also dairy farmers and other activities and the new deal is speaking to them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, it, it, there's, there are structures there um, the other thing that will emerge during the New Deal that will capture at least a few locals is the CCC. So uh, fishing is just a blind spot uh, for a lot of federal uh, uh, relief programs. But I would say it's also a blind spot for like the State Department and economists in terms of how they understand productivity and contributions. So as is the fundamental problem, and this is one of the key points of this book, as is the whole importance of seasonal labor in a rural economy. Yeah. And, yeah, and you know, and, going, and, you know back going back to the dairy farmers, farmers I thought, farmers, that, I thought that, that it was interesting that they did organize into a cooperative, right? Yeah, but much earlier. Yeah, earlier. cooperative merges is in 1909. Yeah, and kind of when I was reading along, I was thinking to myself, why, I guess these are kind of the same people, but why couldn't they organize in the same way is what I was thinking. Okay, so... Oh, I can tell you, actually, that that's a really important question, uh, but there's a straightforward answer because the state wouldn't let them because um, they're not understood as uh, wage laborers. They're understood as entrepreneurs and thus they would be a cartel. So the state passed laws to prevent fishers from organizing. Now, on the Columbia River, they actually do work, it, uh, form a co-op. And they form unions, but those unions wax and wane in terms of their solidarity and the co-op itself it's, uh, becomes essentially a uh, vertically integrated operation of the owners also being the suppliers, also being the sellers, you know, at the far end. So uh, wholesalers, if you will. So, you know, there are uh, efforts to uh, buy fishers to align themselves into larger unions, but they don't ever see themselves as wage workers. 
Yeah, that's that's really uh, super interesting. And, and again, I think this applies to a lot of different um, workers across the country in rural areas. Um, so um, going forward, I think, you know, you, you do something interesting at, at the end of the book. You actually give suggestions for a bar crawl. Um, and and you, you do that as a way of getting at, you know, the shift to a tourist economy and how that, that changed um, the area. So could you talk a little bit about that hypothetical bar crawl and, and, and the tourist economy? Well, I'm obviously speaking to people who don't live locally or uh, even second homers who really don't intersect with a uh, uh, the oldest portion of the communities uh, in the valley at this point. And it's simply an invitation, uh, you know, the, the implicit message is move out of your own comfortable skin and go spend some time in just a set of uh, taverns in the valley at a point in the year when you're much more likely to bump into not your own kind, but these other people and to begin to understand just how diverse the valley's population is. And as I say very explicitly, the asymmetries in wealth and education and power uh, that exist in the valley because it is a fragmented and it often seems to me by design, non-intersecting set of demographies. Yeah. And um, part of this change is also, I think you mentioned the, the loss of the elders or, or previous generations that had been involved in, in the fishing industry. So can you explain why that's important for how, how the economy changed? Well, it wasn't so much the loss of the elders that changed the economy as it just more or less coincided with that sea change in the, uh, sea change in the economy. Um, the people I interviewed in the 1980s, and I wasn't able to get to some before they died. Um, you know, my initial undergraduate project was in part spurred by the realization that the old timers were passing away. And because of the lack of records, they were taking their stories with them. And this was, an, you know, at one level, an intervention to try and capture some of those stories. But by the early 1990s, um, it was becoming clear to a lot of people in the Valley that their worlds were changing, that fishing was um, uh, imploding for a variety of reasons, but the reasons for that were different than the consolidation that was happening in Daring very rapidly. And in both cases, that was different from what was shutting down logging in the forests at that time. And all this while, the, um, the recreational economy was waxing and waning as it typically does based on good and bad times. But the second home industry, and especially all these people who called somewhere else home but actually had homes in the area, were becoming this ghost presence that really was increasingly driving the economy in the absence of those other natural resources. And, you know, it, part of the bitterness was realizing that the natural resources weren't going away. It was just that the structure of the economies were changing so rapidly that with, you know, with the passing of one generation, very old generation, was also passing a larger way of life 
for a lot of people who ne- weren't necessarily looking for a different life, but it was just getting much more difficult for them to pursue it. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process of, of doing these oral histories? You know, I think oral histories are very important, um, but they're controversial and some people don't see them as, uh, as trustworthy as, as written sources. So, so what place do you think uh, oral history has in, in environmental history? I think it's a very important place, but I'll tell you, I am towards that latter end. Uh, you know, I, in spending time, I had an advantage from the beginning. Uh, my process was ugly and unprofessional. I was an undergraduate kind of feeling my way through it. And mercifully, there were no REB boards around because I, I'm not sure how long it would have taken me to actually cut uh, past muster. Uh, for what I was doing. So I was literally um, walking into people's houses and sitting down and talking to them for a while, long before I would turn on the tape recorder and just asking them some open-ended questions and letting them ramble. And it, I had an advantage in that I was a known entity. I was considered a local. So they were more willing to be open with me about stuff that I'm not sure they would have been open with uh, if it had been just an average um, uh, sociologist from the University of Oregon or somewhere else like that. Um, so I, I got a lot of good stories and those stories were rich in details and rich in um, uh, a lot of qualitative information about the meaning of life and the meaning of family and things like that. But the facts weren't always really reliable. And in some cases they were, I, I Over time, because I was uh, a quasi-local by that point in time, uh, because I was back at the University of Oregon mostly, um, I kind of knew when they were not telling me stories. Uh, I knew things about families, and I I knew when they were shaving some of the details or skipping over the naughty bits. Um, They all, uh, really interestingly, misremembered the date of the the year of the battle over the closing of the Nistucca. Everybody got that wrong. And those were signals that I shouldn't just, you know, transparently uh, trust everything that they said. It also helped that my advisor at the University of Oregon, uh, Edwin Bingham, who uh, was on the verge of retiring at the time, was forcing me to read a lot of stuff on history and memory so that I was understanding exactly what I was dealing with. So that helped a tremendous amount. Bing was wonderful from the beginning to the end of the project. Yeah. Um, you know, from my experience, not doing a lot of oral history, but using a lot of oral history, um, you definitely need to double check details. Um, and, and yeah, uh, but what's your opinion on it, oral histories in regard to the details of the work that become, you know, how these people remember the fishing and and the tools that they used and and the labor process was that reliable typically it, it was because it mirrored things i was seeing about um, memoirs about commercial fishing on the columbia river and other things but I, i'll tell you it wasn't just the stories but the you know it was the physicality of what was happening sitting down in an interview with Walt Fisher who was 80 something years old and you could still see the musculature from his life of rowing boats and he would be talking about it and leaning back into the barca lounger as he's talking and you could see his body going into a rhythm you could see the size of his hands and 
it all came together as a physical as well as oral performance. And at that point, it was hard to deny just how important that was. Yeah. Yeah. uh, And and, uh, again, you know, I think oral history often reveals details about work um, that, that no other sources do. Um, if, and of course, if you can, if you can, um, double or triple check, check them. Uh, uh, well, I would tell you that, you know, part of the reason is that a lot of people, these people never write it down. Mm-hmm. I mean, it lives as an oral culture for them. This is something I've found with climbers as well. And quite frankly, it's really important to recognize how important the oral culture is to congressional politics. Um, there are a variety of there are a variety of um, cultures in which the vast majority of information is not written down, even among people who are literate. Uh, so you know, zooming out and and looking at the larger structure of the book, um, do you see um, the nineteen twenty seven law as um, a type of enclosure? I don't think the word works really well, although there's an insight to be gained from thinking about that term. Uh, The enclosure movements of Europe were really um, uh, a set of uh, processes by which uh, crowns and parliaments gave leave to property owners to drive people off their property. And it was largely affected by private property owners in that sense. That's not really what's happening here. It's much more we're looking at battles, and this is central to my my entire career, looking at contests over uh, what are considered public resources in which one portion of the public is driving other portions of the public away. This is a very old story. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Normans in some senses, but, um, you know, it's one that's been very well told by Carl Jacoby, Mark Spence, uh, Louis Warren and other people, uh, in terms of the implications towards, uh, native peoples in North America. Um, but they're far from the only group that is driven from the ground. Uh, African Americans in the South are similarly driven out of the forest, uh, ethnic hunters of various sorts. Um, and then, um, even in the salmon fisheries, it's a story of driving one user group out after another out of the, out of uh, the off the waters until uh, hopefully one group is left controlling it all. But in fact, they're actually fighting over the last fish. Uh, well, Joseph, we've taken up a lot of your time, um, but we have one last question. Uh, can you talk about um, any other pr- projects that you're working on now? Uh, yeah, um, you mentioned earlier the um, uh, Follow the Money Project, which is an attempt uh, to um, graphically illustrate transfer payments from uh, federal land management agencies to um, the uh, the counties in the public land states of the far west. That I, I backed into that project while I was doing work on a biography of working on forever of uh, the author of the Taylor Grazing Act. And uh, as I was pursuing that project, I backed in first into the transfer payments uh, project. And then subsequent to that, I began to realize that there was a much larger, much more complicated story in terms of how we understand the entirety of federal 
progressive conservation if we simply look at it from the perspective of Congress. Um, and as a result, uh, I haven't stopped working on the biography, but I've largely been deflected into a history of congressional conservation uh, that at this point is spanning from 1861 to 1941. Um, and I am framing it as a, a story about progressive conservation because you can see in the legislation, in, even in the 1860s and 1870s, some of the programs that are coming out that have all the markers of what we would eventually associate with progressivism and our progressive conservation. So that's mostly what I'm working on these days. I spent a year at the National Humanities Center last year uh, making a tremendous amount of headway, and I am right at this moment um, transitioning from hunting and gathering mode to start banging out pages of words and it's you know i'm in a happy place great that sounds like it's going to be super interesting and i want to thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed it uh take care thank you jason